for your ministry in song. Um, Guys, I need my channel changer. I don't have it. About uh, two and a half months ago, right before the pandemic um, breaking up of uh, our meetings, we were in the book of Hebrews, studying verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. And now with a two and a half month delay, we're back in the book of Hebrews. If you'd make your way to the book of Hebrews, as you know, the, uh, the theme of this deep and difficult book, what I think really has been for me uh, in 43 years of knowing the Lord. In fact, I just had my spiritual birthday this past uh, Monday, 43 years old in the Lord, and I'm still tied to the pulpit here. Thank you so much, Nathan. Nathan helped so much during our time away, as did others um, with keeping us online. But uh, still tied to the pulpit until uh, we get the wireless uh, situation. So we're in transition, as you know. Wanted to give you uh, a reminder of that. Well, we're up to chapter 6. The book has been about the the, uh, supremacy of Christ. And so far in the book of Hebrews, it has presented the supremacy of Christ. Superior, he's superior to angels. Superior to Moses. Superior to Joshua. Superior to Aaron and the entire Old Testament priesthood. Christ is preeminent. And God's people said... Amen. That's what the book of Hebrews teaches. Our last study in this book finished out chapter 5 and introduced chapter 6. Chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6 and verse 3. We're going to review that in a moment. And it began the fourth warning in this book. There are multiple warning passages. And this warning passage runs through chapter 6 and verse 12. So today... We tackle, and people have asked me about this, uh, and it's it's interesting that um, uh, right before we had the the separation due to the uh, coronavirus uh, attack, uh, I was right up to the precipice of this particular text, and people had asked me, um, are you ready for chapter 6, knowing that it is the most difficult passage in the most difficult book in scripture. So it's difficulty squared. Um, Am I ready to preach it? Well, I wasn't at that point, but I've had 10 weeks to agitate on it. (laughs) And so uh, I really do believe what I'm going to share. In fact, I always believe what I'm going to share uh, is done with careful exegesis, the best that I can bring. And with complete integrity of heart that this actually is an accurate presentation. But I hope I'm humble enough to recognize that this being arguably uh, the most difficult uh, text in what I think is the most difficult book, there are a number of uh, understandings of this passage I'm going to present after careful study and really a lifelong um, uh, study of this text, what I believe that the text actually does teach. So, the title, uh, a lengthy title, regarding the eternal security of the believer, two different views, one definitive verdict. So appreciate uh, Jessica List putting together the PowerPoint um, after I give her the notes uh, these many weeks. Very nice job. Thank you so much. We're going to pick up the context, though, in chapter 5, verse 
11. And the first thing that we're going to consider is reviewing the context. Chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6 and verse 3. Literally skimming over this because we covered it at length in the March 15th. 2020 message. And so you can refer back online, go to the church's website, and you can get an entire handling of this particular passage, but <clears throat> just to pick up the context, because it's been so long since we've been in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 5, verse 11. Of whom we have many things to say, and it's hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection or maturity, completion, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, as God gives us grace uh, to accomplish that because we can't accomplish it in the power of the flesh. We, it will be realized in our lives. So reviewing the context, we studied this in detail, um, but to review these verses teach us that there is the need for spiritual maturity. These folks, the recipients of this letter, were spiritually immature, um, and the writer rebuked them <clears throat> by saying, you ought to be able to handle theological meat. <clears throat> but you still require the theological milk. <clears throat> that is the very elementary, the basic rudimentary principles of um, <clears throat> what you first learned at the very beginning. He was exhorting them to grow up. Hence, these are saved people. Lost people can't grow spiritually. They're spiritually dead. You have to be born again. You have to come alive <clears throat> Excuse me, in Christ in order for there to be any uh, opportunity to grow. And so from the perspective of the writer of <clears throat> the book of Hebrews to the recipients, he had the understanding that these are believers. Now, just like I do, you all are believers. <clears throat> this is a crowd of believers here today, but we all understand that within this congregation, there could be any number of folks who are lost and self-deceived or who are knowingly lost, and I wouldn't know it, but maybe you know it. And so that is the perspective of the writer of the book of Hebrews. He is presuming and, and he is uh, affirming even that these are believers. And the reason that we know that is because they ought to have been teachers, but they haven't grown to the maturity of being teachers yet. They're not formal teachers necessarily, but those who could communicate spiritual truth. Now, folks, if you've been saved any length of time at all, you ought to be able to right now defend 
the inerrancy of scripture, the authority of the word of God. You ought to be able on the spot, be able to defend the deity of Christ. You absolutely ought to be able to tell someone else about salvation by grace uh, through faith. And, and those are some of the elementary principles that you first learned. And if you haven't matured, if you haven't grown in the Lord at all, you're not going to be able to defend those important elementary doctrines. That was the case here. Warren Wiersbe offers real help with an understanding of this passage when he wrote, if you keep in mind that the emphasis in this section, that is in chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 12, the emphasis in this section is on making spiritual progress, that is maturing, you will steer safely through misinterpretations that could create problems. Well, that's absolutely the case. One of the first symptoms of spiritual regression or backsliding is the dullness toward the Bible. Sunday school class is dull. The preaching is dull. Anything spiritual is dull. The problem is usually not with the Sunday school teacher. Can I get an amen, teacher? Teacher? It's not with the pastor. Of course not. It's not that. But the believer himself is dull, is not maturing in the faith, is not maturing in theological understanding. That is the gist of this text in the end of chapter 5 going in to chapter 6. So how does spiritual maturity then take place? You, that, that begs that question. Um, to the point of no longer only being a recipient of truth, just a, a, a pond where the water is coming in, but a flowing, life-giving river where it's receiving truth and giving out truth. How does that actually take place? By uh, ingesting and digesting, if you will, the word of God by studying and understanding and then applying and then presenting that truth to other people. Theologian, commentator Donald, Donald Guthrie wrote, spiritual maturity comes neither from isolated events, that is a, a weekend revival, it doesn't happen that way, nor from a great spiritual burst, well, I'm just going to get zapped by God and that, that will bring me into the point that I need to be. No, 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 no. But it's from a steady application of spiritual discipline. I did a study this week on the tortoise and the hare. You all know the story? How long does a typical hare, thanks, um, give it a toss. I don't want you to, uh, uh, want to be able to show that uh, a marine can make a good toss. <laughs> Thank you, Daryl. How long does a typical hare in the wild live? Guess. Six months. Somebody said six months. Really, one to two years. A, a three-year-old rabbit out in the wilderness is an old dude. Typically never, never uh, runs himself to death, uh, is caught by something, uh, is injured, is diseased. How long does a typical large zoo tortoise live, whether in the wild or, or in captivity. 80 years is an average. So that means it can be a big 100 years. In other words, if you set them going, the hare is going to have to stop regularly to rest, and you started them running, and, but the tortoise can keep on going. It's the ever-ready uh, battery bunny. It just keeps on ticking. You know what I'm saying? So 
the idea here is to be the tortoise. It is a lifetime, a long path of staying faithful and all the while you're growing and all the while you're putting on more and more maturity. Did you understand, was that, a, that illustration understandable? Um, that's the idea. It is not sudden burst. Okay, I'm going to really study this week and, and then lay off for six months. No, it's every day. It's day in, day out. That is what the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying. And he's saying, you all haven't been doing that. Shame on you. Come on. Let's move on at the beginning of verse 6 or beginning of chapter 6. Let's not just focus on those elementary principles, but go on to maturity uh, and grow in him. So that's the context of what was going on. Now, presenting the two views. And I say the two views because I'm going to dismiss one of the views just right, right away, um, right out of hand. But just like many passages of scripture, there are multiple views to the interpretation. Hence the need to rightly divide the word of truth as 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us and to give careful uh, attention to exegesis. Now I'm going to dismiss uh, out of hand because we don't believe it here, never have. My guess is there's, there's probably hardly a soul here who would have a good understanding and a belief in the Arminian view, which says that the genuine believer can fall from grace. That is, the genuine believer can lose his or her salvation. And in fact, that happens. We have never taught that here in the 55-year history of this church. We, is, we have always held to the uh, perseverance of the saints, the eternal security. That is, if you, are, if you are genuinely saved, you will forever be saved, never to lose that. Suffice it to say, there's a wealth of evidence throughout scripture which speaks to that. Let me offer a, a couple of, I think, compelling and convincing passages. Romans 8, verses 1, and then verse 38 and 39. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, there is not any condemnation. There's not any condemnation uh, 2,000 years ago. There's not any condemnation today. There's not any condemnation 2,000 years from now. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And then verses 38 and 39, for I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, and just in case the Apostle Paul hadn't covered everything else to the Romans, nor any other creature, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so you are secure in him. This passage does not teach that you can lose your salvation. I'll share in a moment what it does teach, but it does not teach you can lose your salvation because that would mean scripture would be contradicting scripture. Now, the unbelievers, the, the Bible haters would certainly want us to understand that, which is why we need to have a correct understanding of the text. It certainly does not teach that you can lose your salvation because God is keeping you by his power, according to 1 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5, where it says that we've been given an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. It's reserved. And who is making sure that it stays reserved? The Lord himself. It is being kept. You are being kept by the power of God. And his power is infinite. Even you cannot break out from his grip 
once he has you in his hand. Amen? So we believe here and teach here emphatically without apology that the eternal security of the believer is in fact secure and it is in fact eternal. I mean, what kind of everlasting life, John 3, 16, is it? If you can lose it or if he can take it away or if you can give it back, that's a very strange breed of everlasting if in fact it doesn't last forever. And all God's people said, amen. So we're not going to cover <laughs> losing your salvation because it doesn't uh, teach that in this text and it doesn't teach it <clears throat> throughout scripture. Let me tell you, offer what there is a view and this is the view that of the, the interpretation of chapters, uh, chapter six, verses four to six. By the way, we need to read that. Chapter six, beginning in verse four. <clears throat> for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, notice the parenthetical thought here. In verse 4, for it is impossible, the next portion is all parenthetical, and it picks up, it is impossible if they fall away to renew them again. And then that, that um, parenthetical thought stands alone, uh, in, in at least the, uh, the syntax seems to indicate that. So, the first interpretation, and I don't hold the, to this, uh, it's a warning for unbelievers. This passage is a warning for unbelievers who have come short of entering in. So that is one view <clears throat> that does not teach you can lose your salvation because those who hold to this don't believe the people are saved to begin with. And so that does not support losing your salvation. That does not do any injury to the teaching, the principle of eternal security. But this is not a ludicrous position. One can see how, <clears throat> and there are many solid uh, Bible commentators <clears throat> who hold to this view. Uh, in fact, my favorite uh, commentator, uh, John MacArthur, holds to this view. Uh, he wrote in his commentary, excuse my voice, <clears throat> I was hollering at Kathy too much yesterday and I'm hoarse. Um, he wrote in his commentary on Hebrews, the writer is specifically talking to Jews who had heard the gospel and had accepted Christ as Savior and Lord, but the warning apply, um, uh, but who had not accepted Christ as Savior and Lord, but the warning applies to anyone, Jew or Gentile. So uh, MacArthur uh, clearly holds to, this is speaking to Hebrews in that day to whom the author was writing, who understood that who Christ is, he's the God-man, knew that salvation was by grace through faith, uh, understand that judgment is coming, um, uh, understood that, uh, that the Spirit of God inhabited believers, and yet had not yet crossed over and actually by faith received the Lord. Other uh, prominent theologians, F.F. Bruce, holds to this position as well. It could be that some of you hold to this position. I have not interviewed you, I don't know, but it could be that some do. It's not a ludicrous position 
It is a differing one uh, that I believe uh, the passage teaches, though. The argument, though, has to do with the participles. And this is where the crux of the matter is. In verses 4 and 5, loaded with participles, which are verbs that can, that can take on the flavor of an adjective or take on the flavor of a noun. Kind of a difficult uh, part of speech to understand because it's not prominent, if even present, in English. But look in verses 4 and 5, and you will see these folks being described. It's, it, it, they're described as having been enlightened, having tasted the gift, and presumably that's the gift of, uh, of salvation, having become partakers of the Holy Spirit, that is, uh, the Spirit of God indwells believers, having tasted uh, God's word, the good word, having uh, also tasted or understood the powers of the world to come. The belief is that the writer was teaching that you all were exposed to this, you know it and I knew it, know it, and I am warning, writing to warn you that you must enter in by saving faith or in fact you'll never be saved because if this view is correct, now notice, if this view is correct, what is the plight of this crowd? Verse six tells us if, notice in verse four, if this happens, then this, it's an if then. Then, verse six says, they, if they turn away and, and walk away, then they're never ever going to be saved because that would require a fresh work of Christ on the cross. They put him to an open shame uh, and the son of God has to be crucified again afresh. That is not going to happen. Obviously, that's not going to happen. And so therefore, they are left forever with no hope uh, there's no further offering for them. They cannot ever be saved. Now, that could be the case. It's within the realm of theology that if a person does in fact turn away from objective biblical truth, that there may not be any more light for that person the rest of his or her life until entering into judgment uh, upon death. I don't believe that that is the teaching of this text. So let's, um, let's look at uh, the correct view. Oh, I thought you were going to chuckle on that one. Here's the, what I believe to be the correct view, an assurance for believers who have entered in. I believe this is the correct view uh, and the reasons have to do with overall theology, which is what I shared earlier about eternal security, uh, has to do with um, the context of the passage and the vocabulary and grammar associated with that. It's one way or the other, or, or, or it's maybe even a third different way, but these are the dominant understandings. These are the dominant views that it's written to lost people and they haven't entered in, or it's written to saved people who have not matured. Now, why would it be written to save people who have not matured? So that they wouldn't walk around thinking, oh no, uh, the, the apostle or the writer, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, is basically saying that we're lost. He doesn't want them to walk around with no assurance if in fact they were believers. And so he settles it uh, right here. So through the overall biblical theology of eternal security, as well as the context itself, lends itself to this. Now, let me show you what I mean by that. The passage, verses 4 to 6, is sandwiched between clear indications 
of believers. Notice in chapter 5, it's talking about going on to maturity, especially in verse 12. Look at chapter 5 and verse 12. You ought, it's time that you ought to be a teacher, but you once again have need to learn the basic principles of the word of God. You ought to be eating meat, but you're only drinking milk. Certainly, that is referencing a believer. Do you all see that? That can't be referencing a lost person. And so, in chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, it's exhorting true believers to go on to maturity. Now, notice in chapter 6 and verse 9, it says at the conclusion of this text, but beloved, first of all, you say beloved, you're talking about a brother or sister in Christ. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, things which accompany salvation, things which are consistent with a redeemed life. So folks, is it reasonable that you would have believers being addressed on the front end, believers being addressed on the caboose, and all of a sudden right in the middle of that, you would take an altogether different subject a group, an altogether different uh, focal point. That, that doesn't seem at all contextually to be consistent. Therefore, what is contextually consistent is that it is speaking to and about believers throughout the continuum of that. Did you all follow that? I told you, this is the most difficult passage in the most difficult book. So if you are wondering, I'm not really getting it yet, you can watch the video online and hear it again, do, or even better yet, do your own study and chase the subject around. So there, the context, um, if not clearly and emphatically, it greatly emphasizes that this group, these are believers. Secondly, the vocabulary and the grammar of this passage. It's compelling, folks, because words matter and how words are used also matters. And of course, that is infinitely true when we're talk, speaking biblically. And again, we refer back to the participles in verses four and five. And it indicates that the recipients of the letter, in fact, had been, been enlightened. Now notice this. Now, now, is it reasonable to think that the Spirit of God would lead the writer of the book of Hebrews to uh, uh, just give passing allusions to uh, these, uh, these uh, items in verses 4 and 5, these, prep, uh, these uh, participles, and not really expand on them, uh, recognizing that they would understand. Notice in verse 4, it says, you were once enlightened. That is, you were in darkness, and the light has been turned on in your heart and soul. You are one who was regenerated. Uh, you were in the dungeon cell, cell as Charles Wesley wrote, and uh, the light came on. And I stood up, the chains fell off. I was free, went forth and followed thee. The light came on is what he is saying. You, you, don't have to, you don't have to doubt if in fact you were genuinely enlightened, you still are walking in the light as he is in the light, 1 John 1, 7. And, um, and so that's what they were. And, the, and then the next verse, the next phrase, you have tasted of the heavenly gift. And notice in verse five, it says, and you have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. It's very interesting. That, that, um, that, you, that word there, that word is used twice and it is the same um, exact root word as found in chapter 2 and verse 9. Now look in this book, look at chapter 2 and verse 9. Now this is an important hermeneutical and exegetical principle. Look at chapter 2 and verse 9. But we see Jesus 
who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death as he became a man so that he could live a perfect life and die, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should what? What does it say? Taste death for every man. And so it's the very same word. Did Jesus uh, straddle up next to death? Did he put his little tippy toe in the water of death to feel the temperature? Did Jesus die? Did he die completely? Literally? Yeah, he actually died. He actually imbibed death. He took death upon himself as a payment, a suffering for those who would believe. Well, it's the very same word really used in the same context. That is, this happened to him and this happened to you all. And it's the same word. Um, therefore, it only follows that he, and by the way, the, all three of them in 2.9 and then here in uh, verses 4 and 5, all three of them are in the middle voice. That is, Jesus himself tasted death. And you yourselves have tasted salvation and the word of God. That is a compelling point that they did in their lives what it, the text says he did, Jesus did in his life. Did you all follow that argument? Uh, that's, a, that's a key point. Um, he drank. Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath. These folks drank, entirely tasted of the Lord. Commentator William Lane wrote, together the clauses vividly describe or describe vividly the reality of the experience of personal salvation enjoyed by the Christians addressed. These folks received the Lord. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They had an understanding of the word of God. They had a, an understanding that there's a kingdom coming one day, the world to come. They knew that um, uh, as every believer does. An eminent Greek scholar A.T. Robertson agrees with that. He says, these are all given as actual spiritual experiences, not hypothetical, not, uh, not a, uh, a veiled reference to something that they kind of knew about. No, no, they actually did. These are believers and the writer was writing it to them to give them assurance that even though you are mature, you are profoundly immature. You are not lost if you truly have experienced saving grace. And he was suggesting that they had. He didn't know them, their hearts individually, but he was believing more that I know your hearts individually. But I am believing by virtue of you being here, giving your attention to the word of God, uh, uh, having professed faith in Christ, I'm, I don't have any reason other than to believe you are genuinely baptized in the Holy Spirit, uh, have tasted uh, the, uh, the word of God and, and on and on, that you would also fit this category. Maybe you're not mature like these. Maybe you're moving on to maturity, but you, like them, should have the assurance that you have entered in. That is the reason for the writing, I'm convinced, of this passage. Now, let's qualify it. The qualifying of the verdict. And what is the verdict? Well, succinctly stated that you are eternally secure in Christ. And even if you're immature, even if you still need to go on to maturity. And by the way, have any of us arrived? <laughs> Don't I need to still be growing? Amen? I mean, I do, right? And you need to still be growing. So let us go on to maturity. 
And this qualifies it. And that's the verdict that you are saved and you are eternally secure. This particular section, verses 7 through 12, qualifies that interpretation. Look at verse 12. That you be not slothful, but followers... I'm sorry, I started in verse 12. I meant to start in verse 7. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh, uh, cometh often upon it and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receives blessing from God. But that which bear thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Notice what I said earlier. Probably all of you or most of you are saved. But there very well could be, verse 10, those who are Near unto cursing. Judgment is right around the corner for you because you're not genuinely uh, a, redeem, a redeemed person. That's what the, the teaching is there. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Do believers do that or do unbelievers do that? In verse 11, or verse 10. Believers do that, right? God is going to remember your genuine labor of love. He's going to reward you. Well, the lost are only rewarded with judgment. They're not re they don't receive the, uh, the crowns, uh, the various crowns described in Scripture, the, the rewards. For we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. That you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That is primarily uh, the promise of eternal life um, and maybe even by uh, inference there the promises uh, given to Israel of the kingdom because this is written to Hebrews so verifying or qualifying the verdict follow this if it's argued and it is that the uh, interpretation is correct that genuine believers uh, can't fall away because they'd have to be renewed by a fresh work of Christ that's not going to happen then preacher, doesn't that take away the, the, the warning? Doesn't that take the teeth out of the lion if in fact this is a warning? And I would say no, no, a million times no. The warning is clear in verses five, uh, chapter five, verse 11 through chapter six and verse three. He was scolding them. He was uh, re rebuking them for being lazy, for being indifferent, for not moving on to maturity. The warning is real, but it's a warning for believers to not just sit back and rest and be at ease in Zion, but to move on to maturity. This passage then is one of assurance and an exhortation to grow in the Lord. Now, let me give you a couple of qualifications. First of all, it is qualified by fruitfulness, verses 7 through 9. Very clearly tells us, as we've seen a number of times in this book already, that possession of salvation that is you actually have salvation will result in fruitfulness it absolutely will it's the principle of John 15 those who are actually in the vine those branches which are who are uh, hooked into the vine will bear fruit there's no question that they will uh, those branches that aren't bearing fruit in, in fact are cut off and are cast into the fire and burned those uh, which who are genuine will bear fruit so profession doesn't mean much it's possession which is everything and it's uh, that principle of fruitfulness will bear out and that's what verses seven through nine tell us that which bears good fruit verse seven it drinks in the rain 
which is all the, the blessings of God, and that person is changed. There is fruitfulness, whereas in verse 8, but there's also that which bears thorns and briars, and that is rejected. It is facing judgment. And so fruitfulness, is fruitfulness a part of your life? Well, if that's the case, then assurance ought to be welling up in your soul that you are a true child of God. Listen, folks, uh, 43 uh, and a half years ago, I didn't give a rip about any of this. I could, you would have, if you would have given me $100, I might have sat for a half hour and listened to me go on about a text that I didn't remotely understand, didn't care about whatsoever. But when the Spirit of God came in, when I tasted of the good Word of God and the, and the, uh, the power of the age to come, when I was uh, uh, enlightened, quickened, regenerated, and all the rest that this talks about, now I really do care. Now I really do uh, want to uh, be uh, fruitful because I've been ordained. I've been created unto good works, Ephesians 2.10. And so by their fruit you shall know them, Jesus said. So fruitfulness. And then notice in verses 10 through 12, there's the qualification of faithfulness. In verse 10, it says, beloved, um, uh, check that, uh, in verse 9, it talks about beloved, brothers and sisters. And then it says, we're persuaded better things of you. Notice uh, in, verse, um, in verse 9, we're persuaded better things of you. It's a perfect tense verb. One of the really only verbs, lots of uh, participles in here. But this verb is perfect tense, meaning it's completed action with residual uh, evidence. It's still, it's still giving evidence. We're persuaded better things of you. Now in verse 10, what are they, what are, what is he persuaded? The, the author that God's going to remember and reward you. That in verse 11, that being diligent in spiritual growth will continue to generate that full assurance. As you persevere, <clears throat> your heart <clears throat> swells with the assurance uh, of that you are a child of God. It doesn't make you more of a child of God. It just gives you a greater capacity to, uh, to relish in that fact, to relish that fact. And then in verse 12, it says that continue on, don't be slothful. By the way, it's the very same word that's found in chapter 5, verse 11, about being dull. Don't be that way. And so how do you, how do you not be that way? By imitating those who are passionate for God. Look at verse 12. Don't be slothful, don't be dull, don't be lazy, but be followers of them who through faith and perseverance, not through their own abilities, not through their own intelligence, but those who are, are the tortoises in the spiritual life, who keep on and keep on, and by 50 years later, they're still keeping on and keeping on. You see that? You understand that? Follow those. Look at them for an example um, for seeing what faithfulness is all about. This passage, I'm convinced, is written to teach eternal security. Not only does it not teach you can lose your salvation, it emphatically teaches that your salvation is secure and you can know it. And you can have the assurance that you will be forever with the Lord.